Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. On December 8, 2022, the Federal Society's practice groups hosted Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor for a fireside chat with Rick Rule. The following is the audio from their conversation. Welcome to today's luncheon discussion, Wither Neo Brandeisian Antitrust Enforcement, a candid conversation with Jonathan Cantor. My name is Stephen Schaefer, and I am the director of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project. My friend and colleague, Nate Kazmarek, who is vice president and director of practice groups, is out with the flu today, and he sends his best. Today's event is brought to you by the Federal Society's Corporations, Securities, and Antitrust Practice Group, which Rick Rule was the first chair of. As a note, we anticipate a robust discussion between Rick and our guest, Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor, and we will only have Q&A if there is time available, so please do not line up at the microphones. Note, the Federal Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion by a contributor are those of the contributor. I would like to introduce today's moderator, Charles Rick Rule, who is a partner at Rule Garza Howley LLP. Rick began his career as the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Antitrust Division of the U.S. Department of Justice, a position he held from 1986 to 1989. Over the last 30 years in private practice, Rick has led the antitrust practices of several leading D.C. and New York law firms and has represented clients before the Antitrust Division, the Federal Trade Commission, state attorneys general, and major foreign antitrust regulators. At this time, I'd like to invite uh, Rick Rule and Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor. Welcome, everybody. Assume this is on. Uh, and thank you, Steve, Stephen, uh, and Nate, who uh, couldn't be here, unfortunately. Um, but uh, it's uh, an honor uh, to uh, be up here and have the opportunity to uh, talk to uh, the Honorable Jonathan Cantor. It's the first time I've ever called him honorable, people will. <laughs> Maybe the last. I can confirm. Um, but uh, but I've, I, I've known Jonathan uh, for a long time. In some ways, uh, you know, people may view us as being on the opposite uh, ends of the spectrum of, of antitrust ideas and enforcement. Um, I think we may find that it's, there's not that far a distance uh, between the two of us over time. But I've known Jonathan uh, for quite a long time. Uh, Jonathan, after he graduated from uh, Washington Law School, went to the FTC. I first saw him there uh, when he worked on the staff uh, investigating uh, the ExxonMobil deal and some other uh, oil deals. Jonathan also was uh, heavily involved in the AOL Time Warner deal. Those were very big deals back in the 90s for those of you who were in kindergarten or not born uh, <laughs> in those days. But Jonathan was, uh, stood out uh, in the staff at that point. Um, and later, when uh, I, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, went to Freed Frank, uh, along with Deb Garza, um, one of the uh, first uh, associates who had recently been hired that we encountered was Jonathan. And Jonathan uh, became a, uh, an important part of the team and you know, impressed us a lot. I had clients who basically said, look, we want your best associate on stuff, and uh, at least until Andy came along, um, we'd always put uh, uh, Jonathan uh, on those things. Along the way, Jonathan um, uh, you know, displayed his passion for antitrust enforcement, and I think, as, as some people know, he had, he had an opportunity uh, to marry his passion 
uh, with professional opportunities um, when he was challenged to sort of think of the problems created by uh, platform companies. And he came up with uh, some of the original theories that, that still resonate today. And um, a lot of his practice after that uh, was devoted on, uh, if you will, the uh, enforcement side of things. Um, Jonathan uh, ultimately went out and started his own firm, the Cantor Law Group, um, a few years ago. Uh, and when uh, President Biden got elected, um, the, uh, the administration decided to essentially turn to the leading progressive uh, antitrust uh, authorities. They placed Delina Khan as the chair of the FTC and ultimately uh, Jonathan Cantor at the Department of Justice uh, in the Antitrust Division. Jonathan's now been there for a year uh, in the job and um, uh, he's gotten a, a lot of attention, I'll put it that way. Um, and uh, we want to explore how Jonathan's enforcement agenda uh, is different uh, from that of his predecessors uh, and where he sees antitrust going. And I want to start the discussion sort of at a, at a fairly high level and see if, Jonathan, you can tell us um, from your perspective, what is the difference between neo-Brandeisian antitrust, or I'll just refer to it because it's easier to say, hipster antitrust, and uh, which you probably like even less. Um, and uh, the consumer welfare standard uh, that has evolved over time and that those of us in the 1980s uh, at the antitrust division helped usher in. But maybe you can start sort of where you see the, the principal differences. Well, Rick, thank you for that um, you know, very glowing introduction. And um, it's true, we've been friends and colleagues for a very long time, and it is, it is truly a privilege and an honor uh, to be here with you today and to be with all of you. And um, and I really look forward to a, a vibrant discussion. I do think we may surprise some people along the way that we're not as far off on some ideas as perhaps people might perceive. Um, uh, I will start by perhaps rejecting labels. Uh, I'm, I'm a law enforcement authority at the Department of Justice, and my job is to enforce the antitrust laws and to promote competition in the competitive process. And um, that's the label that I prefer, um, uh, one of rule of law and law enforcement. Uh, in terms of consumer welfare standard, I guess I always start by um, you know, saying that you know, the idea of a standard is that there's agreement as to what it means. Um, and if you ask five antitrust lawyers what the consumer welfare standard means, you often get six different answers. Uh, and uh, I don't think there's... Um, really a basis to call something a standard if there's not broad-based agreement as to what it means. And so uh, I think, you know, with that said, ultimately, you know, the purpose of antitrust law is to promote competition. Um, uh, Senator Sherman called monopolies a kingly prerogative. Uh, and there was a Congress had the value judgment that competition and competitive free market is essential to a thriving democracy um, and a free society. Uh, and it uh, enacted antitrust laws over the many decades and centuries to ensure that we have uh, opportunity and freedom uh, of access to the, over the necessities of life. And that's what antitrust is about. And that's why I think it's worthwhile endeavor to enforce the antitrust laws. Well, let me, let me rephrase the question in, in this way. Given the, what you understand the consumer welfare standard to be, um, what are its deficiencies? Or are you saying that out of those five definitions of consumer welfare, there's one that you particularly like? And if there is, well, what I, is that? I, well, that's the thing is I, I, I think you get into a semantic or lexical debate. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that's wise. I mean, I look at the statute that talks about competition, right? Congress wrote a statute. Uh, it's up to Congress to make value judgments. Congress said, we value competition in the competitive process. 
And so, for example, if a merger may be the substantially less in competition or tend to create a monopoly, the law should be enforced. Um, if Congress wants to impose a standard that's perhaps more detailed, uh, more nuanced, um, or articulate certain parameters, then that should come from Congress. Well, of course, uh, Bob Bork, uh, rest his soul, was, uh, wrote the antitrust paradox and the whole Chicago school focus on consumer welfare was intended to give objective meaning to the term competition. And the reason being that you, know, you could say that a merger which eliminates some competition between two parties um, is you know, a deviation from the competitive system, but the competitive system generates uh, mergers or generates joint ventures or other uh, collaborative activities that actually benefit consumers and benefit competition. So you have to draw the line somewhere, sure. right? And so what, what, are the, what are the kind of objective criteria that you think uh, should determine what's pro-competitive versus sure. anti-competitive well, behavior? Well, first of all, antitrust is about rule of law. And so we start with the language of the statute. That's where we should start uh, when enforcing the law is looking at the words that Congress used to describe um, what the law says. And then we should look to court precedent uh, and we should look to the plain language and plain meaning of the statute. Now, when you talk about welfare effects, one of the challenges is that if you start making value judgments about how to net out different welfare effects, and you start turning antitrust enforcement solely into a mathematical exercise of netting out welfare effects, it can become dangerously close to central planning, um, and it can become unadministrable, and that, that um, clarity uh, or that certainty that you talked about um, no longer exists. And those are some of the concerns I have about um, perhaps an overly rigid approach versus the one that Congress laid out, which is to say, you know, let's focus on competition. And so it's not that any merger that um, lessens competition violates Section 7 of the Clayton Act. It has to be substantial. And yes, there's a question about determination, determining what that means, and that's why you have courts, and that's why we have rule of law and law enforcement. But, but ultimately, I think you have to go back to first principles, and the first principles of antitrust shouldn't be a book written by a professor. The first principles of antitrust should be the statute written by Congress. Well, in defense of uh, uh, Judge Bork, um, I will say that he felt that he was uh, reading the words as, as they were no, written. He, and I, I, know, I, know you, I know you disagree with that. Well, he talked about the legislative history. So he went very deep into the legislative history, yeah. which is a you know, mechanism of jurisprudence that I was sort of surprised to see, um, as opposed to looking at the language of the statute. Well, it's am I wrong or am I right? Certainly not consistent with his judicial philosophy, but. Thank you. Um, uh, but, but am I right? Say, Did he say, go back and his, the root of consumer welfare from Judge Bork came from his review of the legislative history. Now, I don't know that I, he got it right even then, but, but it's not a plain reading of the statute. Ultimately, it should be a value. Congress should write the law. Well, okay, I think, I think again, in, not, not to spend a lot of time defending uh, Bork and what we thought of consumer welfare in the 1980s, but just to state it, the idea was you look at the expected impact on output of uh, collaboration, different forms of collaboration, and, um, and you develop rules that were tuned to what you thought the expected uh, impact on output was. And, and so that's, and so what's, what do you include in that? Do you include in-market, do you include out-of-market? Um, uh, do you include in a multi-sided market? How do you net all those out? Now it becomes the process was supposed to be simple, right? And the rules were supposed to be bright and clear. Mm -hmm. But as you know, um, antitrust practice has become anything but. It's become extraordinarily complex and technocratic, which is not how Congress certainly wrote the statute. Now, and again, uh, there is a, a larger debate going on, I guess, uh, in the people who would purport to defend the consumer welfare standard as to what it is, and you're right about that. Right, and so, uh, so your definition of consumer welfare is not necessarily absolutely. the definition of where consumer welfare 
that is used in other um, forms. And so, again, it, when people talk about the standard, they're often talking about different things. Right. And so it's not standard. It's, it's, it's a phrase. Yeah, although you could say that, and I might, that, uh, that the standard got uh, hijacked along the way and the focus on output got converted into a focus on price um, with the idea that uh, economists could predict price effects and that's where, that was the road Isn't to this why but, we should focus on what Congress says rather than turning the keys over to unelected officials who will make those determinations about what a standard should be? This is why the rule of law should, should originate with what Congress puts in statute. If Congress wants to make a value judgment about a standard or the goals, then Congress should articulate that in its text. Okay, but here's, here's the, the question to you because you're the person who has to read those statutes and has to apply them. When you're applying them, what are the objective criteria that you use to judge whether or not a practice, a merger, uh, an agreement, uh, in fact, harms competition or not? What, look, what is, it, yeah. is it just what Jonathan Cantor happens not to at all. know it it's, when he sees it? It's or? what um, uh, Congress said plus over 100 years of uh, court precedent. Okay, well tell me what that is. I mean, can you give me a general idea about what the, what the standard, how do I judge uh, if, as I'm counseling clients, as many in this room are, how are we supposed to tell our clients what competition means in the eyes are of Are you enforcer? billing by the hour now, Rick? Because I know you're pretty uh, expensive. I hope to after we get done, but yeah. not, not right now. <laughs> Listen, I think it's a broader conversation. I understand why you're asking the question. Ultimately, um, the antitrust laws are about protecting competition. And it's important to look at a fact pattern and understand how competition presents itself. And then determine if the conduct at issue, whether it's a merger or some other form of conduct, uh, has the effect of harming competition in a way that's covered by the statute. But I think it has to start with market realities and it has to start with understanding what are the modes and mechanisms of competition that define the market at issue. And then looking back realistically, I think that's a much more, um, that's a standard that's tethered to market realities and markets shift. Markets change. The markets that we confront today uh, are vastly different than the markets that we encountered just 20 or 30 years ago. And um, assumptions that might be embedded in the law, economic assumptions, no longer hold true. And this is one of the dangers if, if courts start trying to become economists and embedding economic principles into the law, then um, those principles become enshrined, but markets change and markets shift and market assumptions shift. So it's much better for Congress to essentially articulate what it thinks is appropriate. In the case of Congress and the antitrust laws, it's that we value competition. And why do we value competition? Because it yields a whole range of benefits across lots of different aspects of our society. Um, and those benefits might be um, to consumers paying lower prices. Those benefits might be to an entrepreneur having access to compete uh, in, a, in a new market with a new technology. That might be somebody who wants to um, um, have upward mobility in their life by getting one employer to compete to hire them from another employer. That's competition. Uh, and that should be the first principle for where we start unless Congress steps in and articulates something different, in which case we need to enforce the law the way Congress writes it. Right, and, and not, I don't, because I want to turn to a, a different topic, but um, again, for those of us trying to understand and predict where you uh, will go in a particular enforcement matter, the question is how you draw the line, because even taking everything that you said as true, there has to be a distinction between that sort of conduct and let's say the thing that we get up every day and you for the first uh, 20 plus years of your life, professional life did, which is go to work with other ostensible competitors in a partnership and work together to give better service to a client. I mean, that happens all over the economy and, sure. and, and, right. and 
that, that is an, an attenuation of competition, it but is. most people and most courts have always said that's not illegal. So yeah. where do you draw that line? Well, I think that, so you draw the line looking at core precedent, right? Certain types of collaborations are lawful. Certain types of restrictions are evaluated under the rule of reason versus per se. Certain types of mergers, even if they might reduce competition, may not substantially lessen competition. Those are, are factual judgments, right? Um, and that's fine. It's okay to make those factual judgments. It's okay to confront, have courts confront factual patterns and create rules that are dynamic uh, and that relate to the realities of a market. I think that's all fine and good. But that's different than saying there should be a certain mathematical calculation um, that um, unelected people impose to determine whether something's a problem or not. That's my concern. Okay, I think me, that would be the role of Congress, not the role of unelecteds. Okay. Let me ask you, let me turn to a, a slightly different question, and that is the role of economists and economics. Um, you know, you've used the term economics and economists a couple of times in, in your description. Uh, what role, if any, do they have in this process? So um, economists, let, let, let's, let me take a step back, okay. which is um, antitrust, in order to be effective, needs to understand how markets function, right? And so um, there are questions of fact that expertise can help us resolve. And economists um, of a wide range might have knowledge and expertise to help us understand what we're seeing. Um, uh, other kinds of experts, maybe um, um, behavioral scientists or, or data scientists uh, or agriculture scientists or healthcare experts might help us understand what we're seeing. Um, my view is they should be used to help address and resolve questions of fact so that we can, like they're used across um, the legal industry broadly, um, so that we can make sophisticated informed decisions. Um, where I think there may be some disagreement with me and others is whether these should be embedded as to address questions of law. And I think that's when it starts to become subjective and it starts to become activist. So if, if uh, when you're confronted in, in your day-to-day uh, -day decision making with econometric uh, merger, merger simulation models or uh, guppy analyses, how important is that? You talking uh, about analyzing fish, Rick? Yes. Um, uh, I, I, I'll let you explain the guppy analysis, but no, no, you, uh, it's, you a, should, it's a standard please, under the, under the merger guidelines. Is it in the Clayton of, Act? Of another Democrat administration. <laughs> but, um, I but just, just want to know, to, is it in the Clayton Act? Just to, uh, just, again, it was, as I recall, at the Obama administration, uh, I believe, or maybe when it goes back to the Clinton just, administration. Where in the Clayton Act is the guppy analysis? I don't know. Go ask uh, okay. President Obama or Clinton. But okay. anyway. Um, the, uh, but the, the bigger question is, wh how important is it to your decision making? I mean, you know, before you, and arguably before Macon, certainly, um, merger simulation uh, models and those sorts of econometric analyses played a pretty central role. And there are some lawyers out there, probably, who still advise that's the key to analyzing any merger. And I guess it would be interesting to know how important that is to you as you look at a particular merger. So I think I, I really want to stress this carefully, which is it really depends on the facts and circumstances of a particular deal. Um, I think merger analysis is inherently, as Congress prescribed, um, forward-looking in nature, and it's a incipiency statute. It's not designed um, to be predictive. It's designed to preserve a certain level of competition. Uh, and so uh, a standard that requires um, definitive proof of effects is not something that's achievable because the beauty of market economy is that you don't know what you're gonna get. The beauty of a market economy is that competition can send and deliver beautiful things that you never could anticipate. Um, and what we're trying to preserve in a competitive market is that uncertainty of competition and what marketplace um, um, in a capitalist free market could provide. Uh, and so this idea that you can calculate a definitive answer through a simulation, um, people are welcome to provide it 
we will always listen, we will always analyze, we will always review the information we have. Uh, it would be um, irresponsible for me to say something is inherently unpersuasive out of context. Um, but in a sophisticated, dynamic economy, uh, the idea that you can have a simulation that definitively or decisively predicts what is gonna happen in a inherently uncertain market economy um, is a tall order. So I think it's fair to say you wouldn't view one of those studies as dispositive. I'll let you interpret any way okay. you like, Rick. So, so it could be dispositive. Do you view it as dispositive? Uh, I think you know I don't, but <laughs> I never have. But um, uh, so I think that's probably the area where listen, we agree. Well, I think uh, you, can, you can take my comments <laughs> for what they are. Um, okay, let me uh, turn a little bit to the real world uh, implications or uh, actually impact of, of your policies. Um, I suppose I'm going to blame this on other people because I don't want to come off as too snarky, but some people have observed I've never that, known you not to be snarky, Rick, so it's okay. Some people have observed <laughs> that, um, it, that uh, with the exception of uh, the Penguin Random House case, uh, the division has suffered a number of fairly high-profile merger defeats. Uh, in the Change Optum case, the uh, uh, Booz Allen Hamilton Everwatch case, and the um, uh, what's the other one that I'm that I'm I'm blanking on? I'm not going to help right, you. You're going to make me look it up. <laughs> you're going to make me look it up now. Okay. And the um, <laughs> Sugar U.S. Sugar Imperial. Yeah, it's so far um, to mind that you couldn't even yeah, remember. Well, I just yeah. you know I'm getting old, John. <laughs> You've been getting um, old for a long so, time. So, right? uh, but somebody, someone might say that this uh, reflects the fact that the courts don't necessarily agree with your view that yeah. the uh, statutes are so clear that you know. If you bring a case in, uh, obviously they should recognize that it violates the words of the statute and you're home free. They've rejected your challenges. So, so does that reflect the fact that you're in a different place from where the case law is and the courts are? Let me make a few points here. First, I think you have a sample size problem. Um, go back to economics. But second is, um, uh, when I look how at- How large does the sample have to get? How many losses before we have a sufficient- Well, first uh, of all, I will, I will let me point this out. So from, from an enforcement perspective, I'm proud of our record. Um, uh, we've had uh, at least, and these are the only ones that are public, four deals that have abandoned either at the doorstep of litigation or after litigation has been filed. And from the perspective of the government, uh, that is the best, most desirable outcome. Uh, and those are four substantial mergers two of which involved uh, ocean shipping uh, and issues relating to our supply chain that are vital, vital to our, our economic freedom and liberty. Um, second is we um, had a successful outcome in the, as you noted, the Penguin, Penguin Random House. That was a five to four merger among publishers. Uh, it was a monopsony case. Uh, and it was a well-litigated case on both sides of the equation, including against some, some formidable opponents. Um, and it was a decisive victory, and one that focused on um, uh, preserving not just the ability of consumers to buy books at a lower price, but preserving the ability of authors to get the benefits of competition for advances so they can go research and write books for a living um, and uh, preserve the marketplace of ideas. Um, I view that as a very successful um, uh, record standing alone. Uh, two of those other mergers that you mentioned are currently under appeal. Uh, and part of the process, as you know, is litigating cases and working them through the courts. And so until those cases are worked through the courts, I don't think it's fair to have a final determination about where they're gonna come out. And then the, uh, um, the last case uh, in Maryland is still in litigation. Uh, it was only a, um, uh, uh, a preliminary injunction, but the case on the merits is still outstanding. Um, and so uh, I think it's all still being written. Um, the deterrent value of our, of, our, of our program, we believe, is very effective. Um, and we believe we've demonstrated that we can bring cases for the right reasons. We can bring them in a sophisticated, 
um, way that uh, is supported under the law. And as we, in, uh, as we demonstrated most recently uh, in the Penguin case, we can win them. Okay. Um, and that's fair enough, and it's appropriate uh, for you to point out that victory, and I want to come back to that in a, in a minute to talk about what it represents overall. I'll, I'll also point out this, Rick. I'm sorry to That's cut right, you off, no, but I, now that I can finally do it, after people want to hear from people want to hear from you anyway. All these so years, uh, it's it's enjoyable. So, um, uh, uh, <laughs> um, this is how we. By the way, uh, I could never shut him up. So yeah, that's, you know, there you this, go. This is a real life glimpse into our relationship. Um, you know, part of what I, part of what I've lamented is. Um, that the agencies um, started putting themselves into the role of regulator instead of law enforcer. And as a result, we have not seen the vibrancy and frequency of litigated decisions. And the result of that is the law doesn't have the opportunity to evolve. And, uh, and so I think on average over the last 20 or 30 years, there's less than one merger case a year that's litigated to a decision, or at least until we started. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately I have faith in our judicial system, I have faith in our legal system, and if we bring fact patterns to courts, uh, and we give courts the opportunity to confront facts, to confront market realities, uh, and we do our job, which is to um, uh, articulate theories of harm that are based on economic realities, that are based on um, sound uh, legal and um, uh, expert theories, um, we'll, we'll see the kind of success that we saw in the Penguin case. And, um, but that's a living, breathing process. And if, if all we do um, is take consents and restructure mergers, then we become a regulator, not an enforcer. And I think that's a risky position for um, uh, antitrust enforcement. Uh, and it starts to veer into central planning as opposed to uh, what Congress envisioned, which is antitrust being an exercise in law enforcement. Well, the other side of the coin, and um, one of the reasons that at least it is said that some of your predecessors really hated to lose, and if you look at the Oracle PeopleSoft loss uh, back in the aughts, um, you could argue that it had a pretty significant impact on the willingness of subsequent AAGs, at least for a while, to challenge deals because they were worried about losing. And, and I think the concern was that if you lose, um, not only might it adversely impact your ability to persuade a court in a future case, but that it emboldens folks to go to court. Uh, it maybe reduces their willingness to cooperate if they think they're going to have to go to court and they're, you're going to lose. I mean, does that trouble you? And so have you seen? You're any... in favor of central planning, Rick. Can I get that on the record? Uh, we can we can talk about we can talk about and we have talked about this, which is um, I'm not in favor of central planning by anybody, including the antitrust division, um, and and that's part of the reason that I think it's important to have objective rules, and that we back in the '80s strived to do that so that people could understand what the rules were, comport. Uh, but how clear are those rules now, right? In terms of, if they're so clear, why is it so difficult to apply? Um, how long is it, how much data do you have to provide in a merger analysis? How much money do you have to spend on, on experts? Um, is, is that clarity that you sought, and nobly so, to bring, has that become a reality? Well, if the wheel stopped turning in 1989, it would have. But uh, it didn't. And uh, where are we and, today, right? And, and the standard and the standard changed. And I think the, one of the problems, I'll just say as an observation, and uh, timing letters. There are these letters that now sort of replace the uh, uh, the second request period, are sort of a, a testament to the fact that you can start out with an idea that's that's pretty narrow, and the bureaucracy tends to grow it to gargantuan and arguably monstrous proportions. Right which is a tendency but, but, of the bureaucracy. But, but, we're, but we're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to create more clarity. We're trying to um, say that the process has become too technocratic. Um, it's become too inaccessible to the broader public. Uh, it's deviated too far from the will of Congress. Uh, and so we're trying to bring that back. We're trying to view antitrust enforcement as a, a rule of law issue, as a, as a, a, a mechanism for law enforcement. Uh, and um, And... 
and, and I think that's frankly probably more faithful to what you just described um, than perhaps what came before. But I think it, ultimately that's the goal. Okay. And but, I think that's, you know, we can agree or disagree right. about um, specific cases or specific practices, but, you know, antitrust enforcement should be about law enforcement, not regulation. All right. But what I guess I'm asking is more uh, your observation of what the impact of those decisions has been on uh, what you're seeing in terms of practitioners coming into the division. Have they, you know, because there is some sense that maybe they will be less cooperative. Uh, maybe they'll be, I mean, you know, some have said that there'll be more mergers presented because folks think that you'll get overwhelmed. Have you seen any no. of that? It, no, we it, have not. Okay. Um, so uh, Danny Sokol's study and, and the comments uh, he's gotten from the defense bar, you, you I, kind I of reject? I have, not, I have not read those comments from the defense bar, um, but, um, you know, again, I perhaps will challenge an economist to say that people act on their incentives. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me ask you a, a little bit about one of those cases. I mean, we could go through the different yeah. uh, mergers. Um, one that went against you, I wanted them to ask about uh, the random, uh, the Penguin Random House case. But um, in Change Optum, uh, that was really the second major vertical case that the antitrust division brought um, and lost. I mean, it did because it also lost AT&T Time Warner. Can't lay that at your doorstep because that was brought by your predecessor. But don't those cases suggest that you have a very tough road to hoe when you go after non-horizontal mergers that uh, you, where you don't have the benefit of Philadelphia National Bank and some other things. And uh, aren't you going to have a hard time convincing judges uh, of their intuition that vertical deals involving non-competitors uh, are more likely than not to generate benefits, which I think makes it tougher for you to block those kinds of things. So there's still a, a rich history of Supreme Court precedent that deal non-horizontal mergers. And we also have. Um, you know, to you, you pointed out, really two cases over the course of what twenty or thirty years right mm -hmm. now, and I, I just I think um, it's an the obligation is ours um, to start capturing market realities. Um, and when you look at the economy, it um, when vertical and horizontal, um, especially vertical, is a vestige perhaps of a post World War II mid century twentieth century economy. Markets are way different now. And it's up to us to explain that to courts, um, that you know, this idea of um, looking at things you know, only through a vertical horizontal lens can um, be the equivalent of looking at video at shot in 4K through a black and white TV. You might make out some images, but you're going to miss the nuance. The fact of the matter is, when you look at what animates today's markets, you see data, you see platforms, um, you see multi-sided markets. These are realities, uh, and these are realities that uh, it's up to us if we think there's a problem to present to courts. Uh, but unless we adapt to make sure that we're communicating those realities in a tangible and coherent way, um, we're gonna continue making the same arguments and everything will be viewed through the narrow lens of foreclosure or raising rivals' costs. And I think those theories still apply in some instances, but it's only the tip of the iceberg of the kind of competitive issues that exist in a modern economy, which is dynamic, which is multidimensional. And it's really important that we start to incorporate those market realities when explaining the facts. And I have confidence that um, courts, if presented with persuasive arguments uh, and market realities and opportunities to weigh in, will get it. Okay. The other aspect of that decision uh, that I'd like to ask you about is the court's uh, willingness to entertain the uh, a litigation of the fix by the parties. And the standard, I, I suppose it's a little ambiguous because the judge did say- It's ambiguous. Uh, they, they met uh, both standards, but there seems to be this notion that 
I think in the judge's uh, uh, view that uh, it's the government's burden to prove that the deal plus the fix substantially lessen competition as opposed to viewing a fix as after having established liability, there's an affirmative burden on the parties to prove that the fix eliminates yeah. all competitive issues. These are issues in live litigation, so I'm gonna um, not go there, but you know, there's, there's a lot of um, precedent in the DC Circuit and outside the DC Circuit and in the Supreme Court that talk about these issues. And um, for your hourly rate, I'm sure you okay. can well, provide that to clients. Well, give me, wait, just to give me a little help and some free advice to the clients, can you, uh, can you describe a little bit your view uh, and approach to remedies? I mean, because there's been a lot written and I think you've said a lot about it, but sure. how, how, do you, how do you view yeah. remedies? What, what I've said is that uh, a remedy is something that satisfies a problem. And so if there's a finding of liability or there's a problem, uh, a, a, um, a violation of the law, you have to remedy that violation. Um, and so, um, you know, we're always open to listening um, to proposals regarding remedies. But what I've said, and I believe, is that they're likely to be more of a rare exception than the norm. Um, because, you know, if there's a violation of law as a law enforcer, our job is to enforce the law. And if, um, uh, you know, again, I think we have to be careful about veering into central planning, which can, you know, come from restructuring. But uh, beyond that, you know, we're always, we'll always listen, uh, and we'll always evaluate, and everything's viewed on a case-by-case -case basis. But, okay, and, and obviously, over time, the way the practice has developed, if you have a, two companies that act in a variety of markets, and I recognize that you just said that maybe things aren't as simple as they used to be, or as we thought they were in the past in terms of what's a market and what's not a market and what are cross-market effects. But let's assume that- But that's the problem, those assumptions- No, 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 well, but are... no, but let me, I'm, I'm gonna give you a hypothetical. Okay. So, so I'm gonna, I, can, I yeah. can in a hypothetical uh, sure, assume away these yeah. problems. Okay. So let's assume that there are, ten, there are two companies, each are in 10 different areas, and there's one area, uh, only one area do they overlap, and that's a problem. Um, why, I mean, is there some reason to be skeptical of a divestiture of one of the company's overlaps uh, to, uh, to remedy the, the problem? I can assume for this conversation that I won't engage in hypotheticals. <laughs> so you're not gonna answer the question, is that what you're telling me, John? It's a hypothetical <laughs> question. I'm in law enforcement, I don't deal okay. with hypotheticals. All right. So, so the, the sort of standard notion that if, you, that if the parties can come up with a, uh, a solution to an overlap, I mean, I, I can talk about pharmaceutical mergers, but I know you'll avoid uh, talking about that since the FTC and not you do those. But uh, as you know uh, from your experience in practice, the way traditionally those deals were handled you look at, at the transaction, you look at where there might be overlaps, uh, either of actual products or products late uh, stage of the pipeline. Um, and if there were those overlaps, generally the FTC would require you to divest one or the other and allow the, uh, the matter to go forward. The FTC seems to be rejecting that today. Um, and uh, so again, is, is, there, is there some notion that and this is what I guess I'm trying to get you to, to, uh, to tell us, is there some notion that you're inherently suspect of divestitures because they may be ill-defined and the business that's spun off essentially uh, doesn't resolve the problem because the parties have hoodwinked you and, and uh, uh, decided to spin off some crappy assets? You see, you were, you were moving into the direction of a question that maybe I would answer and then you had to get all sorky. Okay. Um, so let me be very clear. I'm, I'm not weighing in on a specific industry. I'm not weighing in certainly on what the FTC does. Right. Let me posit a question, though, for everyone. Do you think Americans are happy with their drug prices? Um, but I don't know that, that their unhappiness is no, due No, no, Rick, to... I, that was not the question I asked. Okay. Well, let me, let me just tell you. Let me just tell you. Let me tell you. Are what, Americans let, happy let me with their drug prices? Let me tell you what. Let's, what are the, let's ask the audience. What, <laughs> what do you think? 
Why would, but why would they be happy Thank with you. any price they above zero? Thank you. Asked and answered. Let's move on. Now, Counselor. why would they be happy? Look, here, that's the problem with intellectual property, Jonathan. It's not the problem with antitrust, right? I mean, it, you know, I remember uh, one of uh, somebody who you didn't know, but you've heard about, Roger Anderwelt, who was a deputy in the antitrust division. Um, I've only and, heard you speak uh, and others um, incredibly warmly right. and, and fondly. And he was a, a great man. Um, but one of the points that he made was, you know, it's very hard to tell, I mean, at the time he used uh, India as an example, Indians that they ought to pay a positive price for a drug that's already created, right? I mean, but the, the reason Rick. that we give property rights and we allow people to pay, uh, charge more than marginal cost is because that's the fuel uh, to get people to invest, right? That's your view. I'm just asking, are okay, people well, happy with their right, drug right. prices? Are they too high or are they too low? And the question is if Have we Have you think ever met a price that you thought was, uh, was too low as a consumer? Is there ever a price that you, I, would, that you wouldn't I, think, gee, I'd think, like to pay less for that Tesla? I think people who are um, struggling to make ends meet and need vital uh, access to pharmaceuticals for um, their their lives and their livelihood and their families. Um, I, I you know and, and, I, and you're not doing this, but I I don't make light of that. I mean these are issues that affect people in a profound way. It's life or death. It's it's grandparents. It's children. It's um, people at the poverty line who are looking um, to have life's access to life saving pharmaceuticals. Like you know if we believe that competition. Uh, results in, in better innovation, competition results in lower prices, competition low, uh, results in better access, in better service, um, then you know that's relevant. I agree. I, I, I'm not weighing in on a specific yeah, and, and, procedure and again, or policy. Jonathan, All I'm, I'm saying I'm, is your hypothetical, uh, um, I just asked a question in response right, to I, I, I get it, and, and it's an acute uh, rhetorical device. Um, but uh, the, um, the, the, the point- I was well trained. The point, is, the point is, I agree with you certainly on competition, but you have to disentangle competitive effects from effects of property rights, right? And, and I think with pharmaceutical people, and, and I'm not carrying their water, well, as you know. I don't but know, is I think that what right? They would say <laughs> what, is, what do you think? <laughs> I think that what they would say is that property rights and the ability to capture the value from drugs you create, create the treatments that uh, you know, are made available to uh, grieving families that's, in the future that a, weren't available today, a, and that's important. That's a different question, Rick, from whether a merger that might substantially lessen competition has the ability to raise prices to life-saving pharmaceuticals. I'm not answering yeah. that question. It's a case-by-case -case basis. We have to look okay. it out on the facts. All I'm saying is it's important to understand that the policies and the decisions we make may have effects on people, and I think it's healthy to always evaluate whether the decisions we're making or the assumptions we make about whether certain types of practices, remedies, or otherwise work um, um, still hold true. And I think, you know, I think when, when you know, as um, someone wise once told me is when the, the facts and the models don't line up, the problem is not with the facts. I agree, that, and I definitely will agree with that. But let me go back and, and try it this way. I think the way you have described your approach to remedies suggests a greater skepticism about remedies than at least some of your predecessors, maybe all of your predecessors, when we're talking about structural remedies. Generally, the division have, has always been skeptical of behavioral remedies. But with respect to structural remedies, I think it is fair to say that at least the way your words are being interpreted, you're more skeptical that they can solve problems. And I'm just asking you what the basis of that skepticism is. Sure, so um, again, I wanna be very clear that each situation needs to be evaluated on its facts and, and context matters and facts matter. Um, these are real world assessments based on market realities. And so I do wanna be very clear about that. Uh, all I'm saying is that we, need to evaluate that, you know, for example, when you take a, um, a business and you rip something out of it, um, you know, it creates disruption. Um, and it isn't always the case that 
when you remove employees from a, from a business, when you remove products from a business, when you remove intellectual property from a business, when you sell it to somebody that you're necessarily getting the kind of certainty um, that um, you had before the merger. And I think it's important to be inquisitive about the um, implications of doing that and whether that's going to remedy an other, what would otherwise is a violation of the law. I think those are fair questions, and I think they're, they're responsible questions to ask. And, um, and I think it's important to revisit whether we've been going about asking them in the right way um, uh, against the backdrop of perhaps an economy that's become too concentrated. And so that's all I'm saying, and it's case by case, fact by fact, but there are real, con real world consequences, um, and it's not as always simple as just slicing off a business and selling it. It doesn't work that way. And you know that as well right. as I do, which is that these are often very complicated scenarios. And, um, you know, and, and I will also point out that um, traditionally consent decrees don't um, protect against the risk of that remedy failing. Right. They okay. just ensure that the remedy gets done, but they don't actually protect the public if that competition that's lost disappears forever because the remedy fails. And so we need to take this very seriously because the consequences are very serious. Okay. Let me um, uh, turn to uh, something that I think is on everybody's mind I want to get to before uh, we run out of time, and that's the merger guidelines. Um, you know, it's what are those? Huh? What are those? Well, I hoping, I'm hoping you'll tell me that, although maybe given your description of the fact that there is no horizontal, there is no vertical, Maybe there is That's no not what I said, Rick, anyway. just to be very clear. Uh, but uh, but um, you guys have announced that uh, you are coming out with a new set of guidelines. Uh, there's a lot of thought, uh, and again, to some extent, to address what Sokol says is reports is the bar's view I've, that there's a lot I, of opacity. I haven't I know, read that. I know you haven't read it. But the fact that there's a lot of opacity and, and lack of clarity in terms of what you mean. So the, the people criticize me for saying things, and nah, then they nah, criticize nah. me for not saying enough. I got, I got. It's well, like but, uh, but, but there is, but the, I'm, I'm hoping that, yeah, I mean, basically trying to build up your guidelines that this will resolve a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the problems, John. So, um, I, so, but that is the, yeah. uh, I think one of the reasons that people are anticipating them highly yeah. Because it, it appears that there's going to be a complete reworking of the guidelines. And I, it, it, what can you tell us about the timeline? Sure. Uh, and what can you tell us, uh, if anything, about what to expect from, you know, when you do yeah. release the draft? No, it's a fair question. Listen, we are working hard on the guidelines. We're getting close. I think it's a matter of... Uh, weeks and months maybe, but, but not much longer than that. Um, so relatively soon. Um, it's, a, it's a rigorous process. And so um, you know, there are a few core animating concepts. One is fidelity to the law. So we started the process by doing a complete um, uh, survey of the law, right? Case precedents, you know, anything that's binding precedent, um, we reviewed and we're reviewing and we're incorporating it and it's, it's ultimately an exercise in law enforcement. And so fidelity to the law is the first animating principle. Second is fidelity to economic realities and market realities. And so we start our question with how does competition present itself uh, and what are the potential threats to competition? And only when you understand the answer to that question, those questions, can you really adequately conduct an investigation to determine whether, for example, a merger threatens that competition. Um, and so we're, we're going about it in a very systematic way. We're going about it in a very inclusive way. So um, we have um, spent the last probably three months now engaging in a vibrant debate with our entire staff at the Department of Justice. Um, this is not you know, a few people in an ivory tower um, writing a think piece. This is a, a living, breathing process that uh, involves feedback from the people who are on the front lines investigating mergers and understanding um, what issues they're confronting on a daily basis. Our public comment period has been more robust than any uh, other that I've seen ever. Um, we had over 5,000 comments to our initial RFI, and when we um, um, issue the guidelines, we'll have another round of comments. And so 
um, it's, you know, we're, and we're reading everything. We're taking the feedback seriously, uh, both internally and externally. Um, but ultimately, we're guided by the law and we're guided by market realities. And will we, for example, will there still be HHI uh, thresholds and that sort of thing, or is that being swept away? Well, if I tell you the end of the book, you won't buy it. <laughs> Trust me, we'll buy it. <laughs> We have no choice. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for now. <laughs> okay. Um, let me, one thing that has been raised with me um, is whether or not these guidelines are going to have a, a separate section that applies to private equity. I think the, the question arises because you, Andy, um, the FTC, I uh, have said a number of things publicly that indicate a, uh, a focusing uh, of attention to private equity deals that maybe in the past haven't been. But are you going to treat them separately in the, in the guidelines, or is it the case that you think standard antitrust principles that apply to mergers maybe haven't been applied and the law hasn't been applied as it should to private equity companies because they think they're financial institutions and not structural deals. Should I take this as a public comment from your record? Yeah. yeah. You shouldn't take anything as a public comment. <laughs> um, no, this I appreciate It's all off the record. I, right? Yeah, there you go. I appreciate the question. Ultimately, um, the antitrust laws apply to private equity companies, they apply to financial institutions. And um, to the extent that you know, those um, kinds of entities are significant, in uh, uh, participants in our economy, uh, absolutely we're going to apply the antitrust laws uh, to private equity firms and to venture capital firms and to understand you know, whether they are um, uh, exercising command and control over markets in a way that's anti-competitive. And uh, I think that's our responsibility. The antitrust laws apply to private equity firms just like they apply to anyone else. And so, um, I think it's important to make sure that we are applying the law faithfully and, um, uh, and uh, without fear or favor. Is there uh, any particular areas uh, with respect to private equity you know, plans or activities that you think have gone ignored and that you uh, are focused on? May not be mergers, but... Sure. Uh, so there have been a few we've, that I've talked about publicly. Um, one is we are vitalizing Section 8 of the Clayton Act, uh, our enforcement of Section 8 of the Clayton Act, which has existed since 1914. Um, but it prohibits... Although we did get it amended in 1990, just so you know, with safe harbors because of... Uh, but go. anyway, that's... There okay. you go. So Congress reaffirmed its commitment to Section 8 of the Clayton Act. Okay. And, right. um, and so... Um, uh, it prohibits interlocking directorates because interlocking directorates can essentially um, uh, concentrate an economy um, uh, through board uh, and officer uh, interlocks. And so um, that's one area that people have interpreted as uh, applying specifically to private equity firms because of the investments that they make in companies and their board seats that they get in return uh, in order to give them influence over businesses. And so we um, we've made some public statements about that. I've talked about that. Uh, when I first started, I talked about the importance of enforcing Section 8, uh, and we are following through on that, um, um, prior, uh, that priority. Um, I've also talked about the importance of looking at roll-ups. Um, when industries are being rolled up and there are trends toward concentration, something that is well-established in the law, uh, it's important for us to make sure that we're looking at the complete picture uh, and, th and those trends toward concentration and the roll-ups of industries uh, that might provide the kind of lessening of competition that the Clayton Act was designed to address. Okay. Uh, I said that I was going to let you say a little bit more about the uh, Penguin Random House Simon & Schuster deal. Um, and I think one thing that case stands for, in my mind, although it's not strictly a labor case, is kind of the focus that you guys have articulated uh, on labor issues and on the impact of transactions and other things on labor. You have a series of no poach uh, criminal investigations going on. So labor's been very much a focus uh, of this uh, administration. Can you sort of 
tell me what you guys are doing that your predecessors missed and, and um, uh, how that fits into your I'll focus less on, on predecessors. And I will also note that a lot of um, the work, great work around you know, poach and labor started um, in the prior administration. And so in, there are many aspects that we're just continuing um, okay. um, um, that, uh, that started in the Trump administration. Um, antitrust needs in competition and competition, and by association, antitrust enforcement is designed to preserve all of the benefits that flow from competition. Benefits of competition can flow to consumers, they can flow to entrepreneurs, but they can flow to workers too, right? The freedom to um, move jobs, the freedom to um, um, have upward mobility and get a better wage because someone wants to compete for your, your services, that's the essence of competition. That's the essence of a free market economy. Uh, and there's you know, nothing in my mind more righteous or important than preserving those benefits or addressing illegal conduct that can harm those benefits. Um, and so it's really important that we are um, fighting for people who um, want mobility uh, and upward mobility and the benefits of competition on the labor side. It's, it's an effect an important effect um, uh, potentially from uh, anti-competitive conduct or anti-competitive concentration. And is is that uh, Penguin Random House, Simon Schuster case, at least some guidepost to how it, you're going to... It is a significant statement that those theories of harm are actionable under the law. Um, and um, it is a um, also a um, important statement about content creation and making sure that um, in the marketplace of ideas that um, people who write books and who rely on advances to research and write and investigate uh, and provide thought leadership have the benefits of competition from publishers in order to get uh, the money to help um, sustain themselves and their families while they do that important work. I think these are all benefits of competition, and it's really important to me, and I think it's important to courts, and I think it's important to the public, that we preserve competition for all of those reasons, not just consumer prices. Of course, consumer prices are an important part of competition. It's not the only part. Okay, and I, I promise to get you out of here in five minutes. Um, so I want to, but I want to quickly shift gears to one other topic that that we've discussed and that you've uh, spoken about publicly before, and that is the criminal enforcement of Section 2. Um, and uh, uh, I think, as I've told you, um, I get that Section 2 is a, uh, is a felony statute. I mean, that's the way the Sherman Act was written. Uh, but traditionally, within the antitrust division, and we thought about it back in the 80s, there's always been a view that it's very problematic to try to uh, prosecute something under Section 2 because of the elements of the Section 2 claim, which include proof of monopoly power, which uh, it seems to me very hard to keep out economic testimony on that topic. But notwithstanding that, I, I think you know, uh, you've got a plea agreement in a, uh, an attempt to monopolize invitation to collude case. Um, but very recently, yesterday, um, you unsealed an indictment of, uh, spoke of his name, Donald Trump might have called some very bad hombres um, uh, uh, yesterday, uh, who were involved in conduct that you allege uh, violated Section 2 in terms of the, uh, I guess, transportation of uh, used goods from the United States through Mexico to Central America. What, what can you tell us about, yeah. you probably can't tell us anything about those cases, but what can you, why am I, uh, and why has the division historically been uh, too shy uh, to use Section 2 as a, as a felony? Why, how, how are you gonna overcome that need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt things like monopoly yeah. power? So, um, Again, I, I really don't want, I won't talk about live cases and I want to be very careful um, when we're talking about criminal enforcement. Everything we do is consistent with the principles of uh, federal criminal prosecution and the law and the facts um, dictate whether we bring cases. Congress made 
monopolization of crime. Congress has reaffirmed that multiple times, uh, including making it a felony. Uh, and the words and the intent of Congress was that that could be prosecuted criminally under certain circumstances, just like Section 1 of the Sherman Act can. And so, you know, why others may have made a different decisions, I'll defer to others to explain that. What I've tried to say early on in my tenure was that we were going to enforce the law the way Congress wrote it, uh, and that criminal mono monopolization can be a crime. And if the facts in the law support prosecution of Section 2 as a crime, then we'll bring cases. Okay, and if you have conduct that is chargeable equally under a per se theory of Section 1 or you know, some other criminal statute, uh, and let's say that the sentencing guidelines um, you know, meet out uh, equally harsh punishments, what, what's the point of adding a Section 2 claim in those circumstances? I mean, what, what, what do you see as the benefit of doing that? I mean, you know, it, it, particularly if it potentially compromises uh, your ability to successfully prosecute the, uh, the case. What's the law? And we enforce the law. Um, and I'll just leave it there. Yeah, but, but I mean, prosecutors all the time exercise their discretion. I mean, it's the essence of prosecutorial of discretion and, and in deciding what to charge. And we do, and we do that all the time as well. But um, if we see conduct that we believe um, violates Section 2 of the Sherman Act and is uh, subject to criminal prosecution pursuant to the uh, uh, federal uh, principles of criminal prosecution and the law in fact support it, then you know, if we believe it's appropriate, we'll exercise it. But um, you know, again, each facts pattern presents itself in a different way. You mentioned a plea agreement. That case was a standalone case. Um, and so maybe that's Although it probably could have been prosecuted or they could have taken a plea for attempted uh, wire fraud. But that's, which is the way traditionally, or at least for the last 40 years, the division has handled those well, sorts then, of individuals. Let me ask you then, why? Why what? Well, well no, I mean, I, I can tell you why. I can, well, another, I mean, since I was the guy who came up with the theory for attempted wire fraud, we did it because we thought that was a much easier way to prosecute those claims than trying a Crandall attempted monopolization claim. So I, that, that is why that, that was there. Okay. But, um, let me, let me ask it uh, again slightly differently. Again, those cases that you've referred to are pretty unique. I mean, in the sense that they involve some bad facts, at least on the face. I don't want you to have, you don't have to comment on that. But to bad what facts it, in what sense? I mean, bad facts for the defendants, I'm saying, okay. So, but I'm asking the question of, to what extent do you plan to uh, litigate as felonies, sort of what I'll call more of your standard Section 2 uh, violations. Conduct, let's say, by, you know, pick your random platform company. To what extent is criminal prosecution uh, confronting them? Because again, in, in Section 1 context, generally you know if it's a per se violation, there's a threat of criminal prosecution, but if it's rule of reason, it's not gonna be prosecuted. But there's not that sort of dividing line in section two. Yeah, we'll follow the facts and law in accordance with the principles but, of But is there a standard? Is there, because there's a standard within the division that you don't prosecute, I mean historically, that you don't prosecute rule of reason section one cases. They have to be per se violations. So is, you know, is there any internal standard that divides those that are- I think we're veering into a broader conversation, we're here at the end, we're over time. All I'll say is that we've been very clear about um, the fact that if it's a criminal statute and the facts and the law support it and the principles of criminal prosecution support it, we'll bring a case. Okay, well thank you, Jonathan. Uh, I, thank I, you, Rick, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.